Greg, Greg, you're a writer by trade, aren't you? <laughs> um, to some extent, yeah. I, is writing I'm a hard? lot of things by I'm a th- I'm a lot of things by trade. Uh, writer, lover, you know, a few <laughs> a few other odds and ends. You know, if we got to scrape by in this gig economy. But Greg, is writing hard? I mean, because I can type, so if I can type, I can probably write. I'm pretty sure it's that easy. Yeah, no, the act of writing is easy. Good mm. writing is hard. Oh, I find okay. I have to do many, many revisions. Um, as you can see from the, the zero reviews on my book, my novel, <laughs> Kingdom of God, uh, which is available on Amazon right now, um, you can see Go no news it. is good news. Yeah, exactly, and leave a review. Um, or don't, because right now uh, there are no reviews for it, so good news. Oh, no news is good news. <laughs> now, okay, this is a little unfair, because I did try to leave a review, but unfortunately... Amazon, Amazon of all people, would not let me leave a review because it noticed that someone trying to write a review has the same last name as someone who wrote the book. So obviously, if you're an author named Smith out there, I feel bad for you because apparently Amazon doesn't like nepotism, okay? They don't like biased reviews. Like Amazon is the number one place that people go to when they're trying to figure out what to buy. (laughs) Yeah. Literally the first instance of Amazon, probably the first and only instance of Amazon actually catching a potentially biased review. (laughs) The reason why I bring this up, because uh, an actor, a Hollywood actor, recently came out with a book. Have you gotten a chance to read it yet? Yes, John. Not just an actor, a humanitarian, a Mm -hmm. person of worldwide renown. Yes, we are talking about Sean Penn, beloved uh, actor and, and, and celebrity. (laughs) <laughs> Two-time Oscar winner. As, as I am concerned, has had no problems in his past. No, none. <laughs> and But John, he came out with his debut fiction. He's a, he's got, he's also has the soul of a poet. Not just oh. as he's a brilliant actor and somebody who's committed to the plight of uh, Africa and Haiti. You know, he's done, mm-hmm. he's done good work over there um, mm-hmm. and he made sure that you saw it. And so... <laughs> but he's also got the soul of, soul of a poet. So he also... He came out with his first piece of fiction, aptly titled, brilliantly titled, Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff. I mean, <laughs> moi, just a wizard with words. <laughs> Greg, look, this is his version of Ulysses, okay? It's just, it's freeform thought, you know? He just wrote out what was, what was coming out of him, and, and screw editing, okay? That's not, that's not a way an artist writes. No. Uh, John, you say Ulysses. I've seen uh, comparisons, unfavorable comparisons, to uh, Thomas Pynchon and Don oh, okay. DeLillo. Yeah, so maybe uh, authors from his more formative years, like the 70s, 60s and 70s. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. What 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 about what about the, uh, these Thomas Pynchon qualities? Do you think people find? I mean, I've never read a single Thomas Pynchon novel. I'm, I assume you. Uh, have. It, it, it's yes, it's it's a challenge. I'll say this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because it's hard to read. <laughs> yes, it's they are very densely. It's densely packed with language. Like you're getting your in terms of I I've done it in the context of my my English studies, mm-hmm. and it's very it's it's richly packed <laughs> with the English language. So you do get okay. a lot to study. The problem is like let's say take a book like Gravity's Rainbow, which takes in like rocketry scientists and, and transgressive you know. Uh, transgressive material about breasts and stuff like that, or Inherent Vice, um, which you saw the movie of, is completely impenetrable. The book is as impenetrable as the movie was. Oh, okay. Just Good in word know. form. Yeah, <laughs> that that's his most comprehensible novel. So, oh, yes, he has yeah he has incredible skills with language. It just it just doesn't come. Don't expect a cohesive story. Kind of. Instead, it's just like a, it's just a mismatch of, of uh, admittedly, you know, compelling, interesting vignettes. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. books are dumb. 
I think that's kind of the conclusion <laughs> we can all come to. But John, you say that, but you haven't sampled Sean Penn's late, first and latest home. Oh, okay. Okay. Do you have a smattering? Do you have a sampling? <laughs> indeed, I do. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes, marvelous. indeed, I do. Uh, John, I'll I'll give this the the gravity that it deserves. The gravity's okay. rainbow that it deserves. Are you ready? <laughs> Let's go. Okay, uh, a reading now from Sean Penn's uh, masterwork, Bob mm-hmm. Honey, who just do stuff. <laughs> Whenever he felt those collisions of incubus and succubus, he punched his way out of the proletariat with a purposeful inputting of covert codes, thereby drawing distraction through Scottsdale deployments, dodging the ambush of innocents astray, evading the Viscount Vogue of viagratic assaults on virtual vaginas, or worse, falling passively into prosaic pastimes. That was one sentence, by the way. Wow. Wow. There's a lot to yes. ruminate on that. Virtual yes. vaginas. Virtual vaginas. Yeah. What do you think yes. that means? I, I don't exactly, John. We have to inter- We have to extrapolate what he means. Um, yes. Because again, he's wow. a brilliant author. And if we can't, then yeah, we obviously we're obviously not working on his level. Um, I know. This is just yeah. That's that's brilliant stuff. I can't wait to share this with my book club, and we can pour <laughs> over all the pros. All the pros. Yes. But John, as amazing amounts of attentive readers know, are aware. <laughs> The most uh, whimsome writing <laughs> always includes alliteration, <laughs> no matter how torturous or tenuous those turns of phrase turn out to be. <laughs> I was making a point there, people. It's easy. All right, it's just e- it's an easy way to look clever. I I hate alliteration. I hate alliteration now. Just the the amount that people deploy it. <laughs> but I mean, it's like it shows your level of sophistication is that you figured out the one letter that you can put all the words with together. Come on, <laughs> exactly. Like when V for Vendetta came out and, you know, it has that big monologue where, you know, he says all these V words. It's like, wow, this script is really clever. Absolutely. You've watched (laughs) a lot of Wheel of Fortune in your life and you know which letters come up the most. So Mm -hmm. There you go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A lot of S sounds, S's. It should have been called Snakes in the Grass Doing Stuff. Yeah, (laughs) Snakes in the Grass Doing Stuff. Oh, uh, but John, I mean, uh, if one thing, it's it's given us a few things. It's it's given us some um, Sean Pre- Sean Penn doing press and talk shows. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes, that's endlessly entertaining. Because <laughs> again, he's just he he just couldn't be bothered with it, you know. <laughs> Buy my book, but I don't care if you do yeah, whatever. I'll smoke on national television. But um, I mean, if he's so proud of it, he should be doing press. He should be going out and trying to sell it to people. Yeah, how about a smile though? <laughs> <laughs> Artists aren't happy, Greg. Okay. No, uh, that's true. They're broody. Yes, and they drink. They uh, yeah, drink a lot. He'll take his admiration at his two Oscars, but you know he won't be happy about it because <laughs> he's suffering inside, knowing that there are people starving in Africa. In and fact, he's an he'll do artist. A movie. He'll it. do a movie about white people saving people in Africa. That's he's it's an... called the last blast. Fate. Go look it up. <laughs> this is basically just a Sean Penn infomercial right now. That's this whole episode. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. We're we're giving press to a not particularly well-written book, so it'll wind up on the bestseller in spite of the of uh, critical derision it's uh, received. Well, Fire and Fury has been at the top of the list for way too long, so we need to we need to knock yeah. that down a pick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing but respect for my president. <laughs> well, John, I, I'm seeing that this book, um, again, the brilliantly titled Bob Honey Who Just Do Stuff, <laughs> um, is might wind up on the bestseller list in spite of uh, some critical derision. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like another book uh, that's become a cultural flashpoint, and this week has been adapted into a movie. I, I don't, ooh, Greg, 
Are are you ready for this? Are you ready? Yes, John, I'm strapped in. Are you ready, playa? <laughs> I I indeed, John, I got my haptic suit on, I got my treadmill beneath my feet, I got and now I'm putting my visor down. Here we go. Are you are I'm... you ready, player one? My name is Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. I have a massive problem. I'm proud of myself for coming up with that, okay? (laughs) No, John, I have a massive problem with that. What? Because, uh, yes, Ready Player One, common expression in uh, video game terms. Correct. Uh, Especially, yes, for for arcade-style games, yes, Ready Player One. Yes. But the story of Ready Player One centers around what looks like a massive online role-playing game, correct? Correct. Yeah, and John, do they ever use the expression ready player one in those kind of games? No, they do not, because there is no player one, is there? Greg, look, there's so many... Already, there's already many we're off to, to a bad start. Greg, there's many problems with the source material, okay? <laughs> if that's your, if that's your yeah. first concern, then wow, we've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say, John, you and I were hotly anticipating this movie because this this book has become a, a cultural flashpoint on the internet. Uh, yeah. For those that don't know, Ready Player One is uh, a, based on a book by Ernest Cline, mm-hmm. um, and it's about uh, it's a, a science fiction novel where in the future um, the society is somewhat crumbled. I mean, circumstances are great, but everybody takes refuge in this massive virtual reality experience called the Oasis. Mm-hmm. And we follow a, a young man named Wade Botts, and we seem to just follow the, the hero's journey. But what seems to have people riled about it is all the amount of just the deluge of pop culture that it, that it brings with it. Well, so the idea is the fact that the Oasis is an escape, and it's mm-hmm. littered with these uh, specifically uh, nerdy 80s references. Partly because, again, like this is meant to be an escape, so obviously what are people escape to? To nostalgia, to simpler times. Uh, the mm-hmm. book takes place in 2045, but the original creator of the game, uh, Halliday, he grew up in the 80s, so that's why he had such an affinity for this ephemera. Um, and why, you know, even though this this love for this kind of material has carried on until the, you know, 2040s. Um, and when the book originally came out, it was kind of beloved as kind of this love letter to pop culture but i think in the intervening years this is what i've read that kind of love is kind of soured and we've kind of seen mm. with situations like gamergate and the alt-right like nerdy people who spend a lot of time on the internet are not people who need respect <laughs> and yeah, i uh, think people yeah i think people can't kind of equate i think that's one thing that people have soured on it's a it's a huge glorious celebration of this when i think people want something a little more sophisticated um mm-hmm. If you are just going to bring in, if you are going to capture uh, an affection for pop culture and for video game culture and for escapism, really. Exactly. But again, like in the recent years, those have kind of soured and it's kind of felt very gatekeeper-y and very exclusive. 
where, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they don't like women playing their video games. They don't like, you know, they just want them to look sexy. It's it's this kind of like misogyny that's kind of really at the core of all of it, sadly, that's kind of been realized. And why, like, looking back at the novel, it kind of like, oh, this is never really touched on, which is just kind of a big yeah. problem with the book in general is the fact that you have this, again, dystopian novel in the setting, which traffics heavily in nostalgia, but it really has nothing to say. And I think that's kind of the biggest problem, because I have read the book. And the book is yeah, pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Let's be honest. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the other point I was going to bring up. I didn't want to interrupt you, but the other point I was going to bring up, not only is it not like sophisticated on a storing level, but the prose is, um, is not exceptional, or, or at least not exceptional for the, what you would want out of a bestseller. Like, no. I've only sampled one chapter where he describes the, our lead character has a car in the game, mm-hmm. and he just rattles off, like, it's basically the DeLorean from the Back to the Future movies, but it's tacked on all this other, like, 80s stuff. Exactly. And it's not... It, it just it just doesn't play on the page. <laughs> no, and the thing is, Ernest Klein, the writer, wanted to be a screenwriter. That's what he mm-hmm. wants to do for his trade. So it's like you it kind of makes sense. Oh, Ready Player One is a great concept for a screenplay. It is not a great concept for a book, and obviously he's not. I don't want to, you know, cast dis- dispersions because obviously I can't write. But it's like he obviously does not have the prose or the ability to kind of adapt this into a novel that kind of means something. And, I, and that's the biggest problem with it is, again, like, I wish there was more wit to it. I wish there was more satire. I wish there was more more of a point. But, John, what if it's in the hands of a brilliant filmmaker like Steven Spielberg? What happens then? Well, then he just turns it into a good time at the movies. <laughs> I, John, I've got, I had the exact same reaction. I thought, like, oh, overall, that was a, that was a solid movie. Like, that was a, that was a good spectacle. Yeah, um, exactly. But, yeah, it... I think you're. I think you're exactly right. It doesn't have anything challenging or witty or even kind of unique about it. Instead, it's just like the the wallpaper, the room we're in is kind of like kind of suffocated by all this pop culture. Exactly, um, but it works better on the screen because, again, on the page, all he can really do is list stuff off. And again, it's yeah. like, oh wow, this is really dumb. But on the screen, it kind of gives it this nice, this absurd, anarchic sense of like oh there's freddy krueger attacking king kong and there's mecha godzilla you know it's like it's, it's a lot more fun playing out as a spectacle which this movie is yeah. it's basically just empty spectacle the other thing too is that the movie also does a good job kind of streamlining the story uh there is a a lot of adaptation that they've done there's a lot of changes and they have one critic i read uh uh, Glenn Weldon kind of made the good point that it's like it does bring a lot more sadness into it a lot more kind of like pathos which the book really does the book is a celebration this one is kind of like it does kind of at least touch on the fact that it's like the creator and this love of 80s nostalgia is a little pathetic let's be real <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I was I was gonna get to the good points first um mm-hmm. I, th- I think what help when you say streamlining, I think what helps is Spielberg's direction, especially in the first little intro. Mm-hmm. We're following Wade Watts in the real world. Wade Watts is our hero. He's played by uh, a young actor named Ty Sheridan, mm-hmm. and we follow him in the real world in this um, what's called the stacks. You know, it's just a it's a it's like a Hooverville only stacked up, and so <laughs> yeah, it's, and we it's, follow um... him. 
they've run out of uh, trailer park space, so what they have to do is they kind of have to scaffold them on top of each other. Yeah, and and basically we follow him. He, he's looking he's looking dour, and it's a, it's kind of not quite long takes, but we see as he as he goes to his little console to go into the video game, we see other people kind of consumed with the video game, and we exactly. see how his like sour expression and and like already we're without even we we'll get to opening narration, but even without that, like you're kind of invested a little bit into mm-hmm. into emotionally what's going on here. Yeah, and again, like, what works for the screen as well is that you get that kind of contrast between, like, this huge bombastic thing that's in, that's happening in the game, and then cut back and you just see the, the person wearing the VTech suit kind of, like, just flailing their arms around. And again, that's just yeah. never not funny. <laughs> yeah, so that the editing works too, the editing mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And I will say, I, I was looking at the trailers for this, and I was a little nervous because half of it is live action, you know, real actors on real sets, and the other half is in um, what we're going to call the Adventures of Tintin World, like uh, motion <laughs> <Yes>. capture. <laughs> and, and initially that's what I thought. I thought it would be kind of this weird uncanny valley, but it's mm. actually very, very well done. I was actually amazed like how immersed I got into the emotion capture 3D world that they render out of this video game. Yeah, I remember in the and trailers like thinking it was like really dark and ugly, but then on the screen it's actually rendered quite beautifully. Maybe it's because it wasn't, like, ready yet for prime time. Like, the special effects weren't done yet. But, yeah, it's actually, like, really impressive. Yeah. I th- it, we should say, production-wise, this movie was pushed back, and maybe those extra months or something like that of post-production did, did like, really do it a service on screen, so... Mm. Weed. You don't tell anyone who you are. You can't use your real name. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. What's going on? The practice in my Mario Kart! Ask yourself, are you willing to fight? There is some integration between the motion capture characters and live action people and sets, and that's incredibly well done. However, that does signal one problem I have. Those are mm. with those scenes take place in the context of video game characters exploring the history of the game's creator, and that's this Mr. Halliday who you mentioned. Mm, yes, and played I, by Mark Rylance, I, Marky Mark Rylance. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great perform. I I think. He did elicit it out of emotion, even though you're right. He is like a like a, a socially paralyzed nerd. <laughs> well, no, and again, like I don't I don't want to say this too much, but in the book, because mm, I've read the book, yeah. in the book he's more of an enigmatic kind of Willy Wonka type. He's kind of like okay. unknowable. He's not really a character. He's kind of just like this clockmaker who just kind of sets the stuff in motion. Whereas here, like mm. Mark Rylance, like really actually, and again, the story actually does give him a character, and again brings that sadness in that pathos, the fact that it's like, oh, a creator who hates his creation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing I don't know if this is in the book. It's it's not it's not about the the video game or the pop culture. It's more about hero worship because mm-hmm. I was stunned by like how much how much the 
the story and how much they put on this on this Halliday character. The first time there's a there's an Easter egg hunt where they have to get these keys, and one character gets a key, and they see his avatar, which is like this Merlin the Wizard. Yeah. And when they see him, they uh, the character literally falls to his knees. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I'm like, like this is, and he doesn't love this '80s pop culture. He only loves it. I don't know if he's even experienced himself, but he knows about it to a to an insanely trivial degree, only because the game's creator loved it. Exactly. And again, like the big library where they kind of have dedicated to researching and finding this. I guess we never even talked about the actual plot of the movie. Uh, the creator mm-hmm. dies, and basically <laughs> yeah. he leaves behind uh, three Easter eggs, three keys that. Uh, any player can find and if they find it and do the challenges then they actually get control of the oasis and all his earnings all his money yeah and, and he's a trillionaire like they would yeah instant instant fortune exactly and there is inside the game there is a library dedicated to just this man that people pour over his entire history of his <laughs> life so that they can figure out the clues and figure out potentially where these easter eggs are <laughs> I know the ego on this guy to say like I've recorded my entire life. Go find out what what my clues and mystery meant. <laughs> I don't know if it's like ego because again, like he's so socially awkward and just so socially weird. It's just I don't know if it's an ego thing where it's just like why wouldn't I record everything? I want to remember everything. <laughs> That's, this is true. Um, yeah, there are there are some lines like um, one of the first big clues because again it's like a mystery film and and mm-hmm. people will like free associate on a turn of phrase and one thing he says like like well, like the game at one scene like the game is like taking off and like rocketing off into popularity and he's nervous about that with his partner and he says like why can't we go backwards you know and it's it's not only a signal to what the next clue is but also all about his nostalgia and why he always wants to return to the 80s <laughs> yeah exactly they want to you know again that whole uh, that whole insipid feeling of nostalgia returning to simpler times which again the yeah. movie doesn't really explore enough <laughs> <laughs> no, it it doesn't explore that. It doesn't explore like the the paralysis of that. Exactly. And also like um we should also say the it's it's also about a romance. Um mm-hmm. our main character meets a uh, another really good player who's a who's a who's a woman. Yep, her name is Artemis and her Artemis. and um yeah, her and uh Wade they they're both gunters, which are these people who kind of like have made their whole lives dedicated to hunting for these easter eggs. And mm-hmm. um Again, this is kind of like a, a a point that the movie's trying to make, but again, it doesn't really. It just kind of brings it up and doesn't really bring it to fruition. Wade falls in love with her like almost instantly, like again to a creepy degree, yeah. and she kind of yeah, like and obviously it... and obviously she's taken aback and she's freaked out by this, and she makes a really solid point, which is just like you don't love me, you love the idea of me, you love only what I've allowed to show you, because again, there's this whole mm-hmm. idea of like avatar, these uh, video game avatars are what we want people to see of us and again uh, the movie doesn't do enough with that there's like not that's never brought to fruition (laughs) you're exactly right it's it's done way too quickly yeah because they literally have one meeting and then that's when uh wade is like head over heels for her and i believe Mm -hmm. his justification for like loving her is like oh we just get each other she gets my references (laughs) exactly it's like that pathetic kind of nerd thing yeah (laughs) yeah or or it's trying to say like uh, pop culture is our is our connection between one another we like the same things we're obviously meant to be together (laughs) yeah 
So there's that issue, the the fact that the romance is way too fast. And also I thought if the story is about romance between two people connecting over a video game or pop culture, like there is no challenge to that. They kind of have this courtship and then they stay together for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. I was waiting for the moment when they, uh, there's always that Disney moment where the group breaks off or something like that and, mm-hmm. <laughs> or partners yeah. break up, but that never happens. It's the evil corporation that kind of separates them, but their their love never never is challenged. Well, no, it's like it kind of happens once he confesses her love to her. She kind of like runs off, but then she comes back and saves him again. And it's just kind of like, yeah, structurally, it doesn't really make any sense. And what ends up happening is like, again, this kind of like half-baked satire, like in this future, like uh, global corporations can kind of hold you as indentured servants if you do not pay them what is owed. (laughs) And she eventually gets kind of caught in this. And again, the visualized as opposed to in, in the book, that's, like, really harrowing and scary, which I did also appreciate that as well. But again, it's, like, okay. it's half-baked and, uh, again, just a wasted opportunity. Yeah. Oh, or, well, John, I mean, based on your interpretation, how much opportunity is there, really? <laughs> I don't know. I just think, like, again, like, well, and people have brought this point up before, long before me, but it's, like, this whole idea that it does have this kind of, like, anti-corporate message. The uh, villains of the piece is this company called IOI mm-hmm. who wants the keys so that they can gain control of the, of the um, game and then monetize it. They want to put ads in it. Ugh, how dare they expect to make money? <laughs> um, and again, like this idea that, it, like, oh, the Oasis is a place of free expression and stuff like that, where we choose to express ourselves with corporate mascots <laughs> and characters who are designed yeah. by <laughs> <That's>... corporations. <laughs> Exactly. Like that's that's the thing I couldn't quite square is like again, people only love this eighty stuff because the creators did and like let's say this is like a video let's make this analogous to today, like let's say it's like Second Life. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at Second like if that were the case, like Second Life would just be full of Freddy Kruegers and I don't know, like Roger Rabbits or something like that. Yeah. But no, exactly. people like try to be more original than that, and that's the problem. It's like the story show posits no pop culture has happened since about the year two thousand one. Uh, well, there is a few and... Overwatch characters, so let's say 2015. Oh, you're right. <laughs> that, that, I'm worried that's just going to date it, because now, if it, if it were literally released today, it would all be Fortnite characters or something. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Why were there no Team Fortress 2 characters in there? Hmm? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, because that that was passe in about 2010, you know? Oh, there you go, yeah. Again, it, it can't, it can't, if, if you want to do pop culture, it can't keep up, so... <laughs> Again, if we make it all so analogous today, it's like if we were all obsessed with, like, greasers and, and drag races and soda fountains, you know? <laughs> no, we're and that's talking kind of, about pop culture yeah. from, like, 50 years ago. And no, and that's kind of the weird thing. It's like, the idea is that Halliday was obsessed with 80s culture, but again, there's a lot of 90s stuff in there. Like, the Iron Giant obviously plays a big role. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you do get some of those more contemporary stuff, like Overwatch. But then there's a huge set piece that takes place in The Shining. And that movie is from and like this... 1979. It's like kind of like where where do we draw the line, people? Yeah. <laughs> well, not well. Actually, I was gonna say that's my favorite scene in the movie. Oh no, that yeah, absolutely no. That is absolutely the highlight of the movie. Is and also again as a fa- like as as someone who's read the book, that works so mm-hmm. much better than the actual like movie simulations that they used from the book. <laughs> in the book, okay. like he had to simulate war games. And, like, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Imagine if they did that for the movie. That would be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be funny. I'd say it it works incredibly on a production level because it literally, as as somebody who's a 
who knows The Shining has seen The Shining and is a big fan of The Shining. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how to see these digital avatars actually moving through what literally looks like the Overlook Hotel in the movie. Yeah. And again, it's got like, the same you, film have... grain, like the same quality of film that the original had, yeah. which is really impressive and really kind of yeah. stark compared to like you know the big 4K special effects extravaganza we've been living in up until that point. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also like the the fact that you know we're kind of in this maze of a of a hotel and all the they have to move through it like a video game and there are challenges that come up that have come up in the plot of The Shining. Mm-hmm. So I was going to say, however, those plots are those pl- those little challenges they run through in this level are dependent on you knowing The Shining. <laughs> well, no, that's the so point. Gonna, is the fact that it's like yeah. if you know Halliday, you knew that he loved The Shining. Therefore, you watched The Shining and you memorized it. I mean, that again, that's the same thing that happens in the book, except with War Games and Monty Python. Is like you had to like know it so that you could get the next key. And but you're right, like as a viewer, let's hope to God that you've seen The Shining and you can kind of appreciate <laughs> the loving recreation of it. Yeah. Well also maybe that's just the, the brilliance of maybe Spielberg and the other writers to say, like, okay, you don't you don't you don't necessarily have to have seen the shining to know to see this corridor with the elevators that blood is gonna come out of the elevators. That's true. Yeah. Or maybe you know what two room two thirty seven means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully. So, may, uh, yeah, maybe that works better than like war games. I know nothing about war games. So, <laughs> how about a nice game of chess? That's all you need to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, so again, that sequence works. However, it you're right. It does feel a little half baked. There's there is as you said earlier. There's nothing witty about it. The screenplay feels like a first draft sort of. Yeah. Because there's a big battle. There's a big battle at the end, and characters confront each other, and usually mm-hmm. there's like a sting there. But mm-hmm. the stings are always like the characters will lock eyes and they just say like it's you, <laughs> or you know, <laughs> like again, there's nothing clever there. Like they literally just say like it's it's hit it's it's uh it's the bad guy Sorrento. Like there's there's no like kind of turns of phrase or anything like embellished like that. Instead, that goes perfectly, and... Greg. That goes perfectly with the spirit of the book. There's nothing clever there. So, I mean, oh, come shit. on. There's like the opening narration with, and that's me. Like, come on. How, how freaking cliche is that? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I got to say, I really love the performance of Mike Rylance. He really, just the, the no, emotion yeah, that, or just how much empathy he can exude. I didn't like that. Uh, Ty Sheridan is a really good actor. I've seen it. Like, you literally see him grow up on screen. He was in um, Tree of Life and a lot of other great independent movies like Mud and uh, Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then to see him in this movie, he's like, "Come on, gang!" <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it goes with the whole spirit of the movie. The spirit of the movie is yeah. meant to be like simple, you know, exciting adventure film. Don't think about it too much, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, for that, it kind of worked. And again, he also, people are complaining because again, in the book, like uh, Wade Watts is supposed to be kind of like fatter. He's supposed to be like obese. Like obviously, he's supposed to reflect the fact that he play he plays video games all day. Um, but I still think that uh, t- the the actor still kind of has like a certain kind of schlubbiness and kind of a certain like non Hollywood handsomeness to him. I uh, uh, sure <laughs> I, I disagree. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, that's uh, again like um, we said. Uh, there's one scene where the it happens about halfway through the movie where uh, Wade Watts meets this Artemis in real life. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness she's conventionally attractive. Oh no, she has a birthmark or whatever. Oh yeah, like, no, that's, that's not gonna. That's lifted right from the book. It's like I'm not pretty enough. Like, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> shut. And again, up. they walk outside. They walk outside, and it's a beautiful day. 
<laughs> so yeah, there's also the Travis. I mean, to get to the conclusion of this, because we've we've talked about Ready Player One far more than they than the, I think the writers even considered it. So <laughs> we've definitely talked about it way more than it deserves. <laughs> yeah, but the the main message and what uh, Mark Rylance's character intones at the at the very end is like uh, the best thing about reality is, is that it's real. <laughs> and that's a that's terrible no, yeah. line that probably should have went through another edit. But yeah, it's it its final takeaway is like go outside. <laughs> No, but and the problem is that the the world inside the video game is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> the whole story does not bear out that moral at all. It's like if if at the end of a Transformers movie, you know, Optimus Prime turned to the camera and said, "But the industrial military complex—that's the real <laughs> Decepticon." <laughs> like it's yeah. like no, that's not what you just sold me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kids don't like after a giant battle scene where he's, uh, Optimus Prime has ripped off his opponent's head. Like violence is not the answer. <laughs> talking about actual life and death stuff. The Oasis, the world's most important economic resource. It's nothing less than a war for control of the future. Welcome to the rebellion, Wade. Like many of you, I only came here to escape. But I found something much bigger than just myself. Are you willing to fight? Help us save the Oasis. So yeah, it's kind of it's a it's a little half baked, but I will say like you know, like a generally like a good time in the movie. Like I wasn't disappointed. No, yeah. In the hands of a great yeah. filmmaker like <laughs> Steven Spielberg, he obviously took this material. And I do want to give some credit to Zach Penn. He kind of like again finagled it and turned it into a better story like again it flows a lot mm-hmm. better than the original book you know there's no like say all the lines from monty python and the holy grail so there you go <laughs> <laughs> well i will say i went with somebody who uh d- did like the book um mm. her okay. reaction coming out of the theater was was not positive because it didn't it's, it's straight too far from the book <laughs> oh no but oh yeah <laughs> and so you're not friends with that person anymore good good all right <laughs> No, John, if, if anything, it's enhanced our friendship because <laughs> now you can geek out because we can we can look at things with a critical eye and ah, uh, great separate. Yeah, yep. separate truth from reality. Unlike this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, enough of this nerdy shit. Let's talk about another movie, mm-hmm. a more sophisticated movie. <laughs> Greg, are you Pacific? Are you Pacific Rim? <laughs> are you Pacific Rim Uprising? destroyed our cities and the monsters we created to stop them we thought we had sacrificed enough but the war we thought we finished is just beginning and the only thing standing in front of the apocalypse is us Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, John, I've got a huge problem. I've got another okay. huge problem with this. All right. Is there an uprising in this movie? Uh, technically, the bad guys kind of do an uprising. They almost start an <laughs> uprising. 
<laughs> it's really the uprising. Like the oh, the villains are the ones who do the uprising, not the heroes. <laughs> yeah. John, who are who are those villains? Uh, let's assume, John, you and I are, are Pacific Rim completionists. <laughs> <laughs> we saw the first Pacific Rim and thought, like, yeah, that was okay. So, yeah. what what was it about this one that you know we wanted to see and thought, like, eh, this this should be okay too, right? I mean, what <laughs> well, what motivated us to see this? Well, thankfully, it seems like the creators of this movie knew as well that you don't remember a single thing from the original Pacific Rim because the first five minutes are just basically a recap, like a clip show. <laughs> like, hey, remember? There's these evil aliens and they're trying to kill us with giant monsters, but we have giant robots. It is, well, it is like a, it is like a shotgun approach. It comes at you very fast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they have a lot of setup, Greg. This, this world, this complicated world, you know, giant robots fighting mm-hmm. giant monsters. <laughs> Yeah, I don't remember a single thing about Pacific Rim. It left my brain the moment I walked out of it. And uh, I have to say, this is the same thing with this movie. But I do think I enjoyed myself a little bit more than watching this one. Really? Yeah, two reasons. One, you have an actual star in the movie. Uh, John Boyega is now the actual like lead character, and he's an actual character, and he's actually interesting and fun to watch, <laughs> as opposed to the... Yeah, uh, we should say... As opposed yeah. to the massive white blood cells that they uh, uh, imported from Australia for the first movie. <laughs> hey, don't talk about Charlie Hunnam that way. Was it Charlie Hunnam? <laughs> I, just, I don't know. It was either him or Sarsgaard. I don't know. <laughs> they, just keep Sarsgaard. <laughs> they just keep importing no, these people. The, yeah, it was one of the Hemsworth brothers. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, John Boyega is definitely the best part of the movie. Like, just his charm. Like, because he... No, he's, yeah, he's, he's a party boy in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, and again, well, the problem is they kind of... Uh, it's the same movie. It's literally the same movie. Again, like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to be part of your army. It's like, this is bigger than you. <laughs> and then there's the other character, like, again, straight out of Top Gun. You don't belong here. This is serious. <laughs> you don't take this seriously. Oh, no, monsters are attacking. Well, the only way we could stop them is by sacrificing our giant robot. I hope we get into the escape pods by t- in time. Like, ugh, it's just... It's dumb, but again, John Boyoka makes it fun, so good for him. Yeah. And but I do have to give it credit, at least there's an actual genuine twist in this one. Granted you can see it a million miles away, but at least it's trying. <laughs> well, th- this twist I think is is very dependent on you seeing the first one. Uh, yeah, fair point. It, it, they do have a little scene kind of explaining or at least giving you a little bit of backstory, but it's like Yeah. Yeah, you do have to remember in the first one that they did drift, which I did not remember. They drift with a kaiju, which is apparently a big deal and a big no-no. Well, yeah, so we should say there's a lot of, like, people have to meld minds, sort of, to A-pilot the giant robots. But also there's what they learn is that these aliens from another world are sending giant monsters through an interdimensional rift in the Pacific Ocean, hence Pacific Rim. At least at least there's a reason to call it Pacific Rim this time. <laughs> yeah, they actually say the word Pacific Rim in this movie, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... The, the plot complication is that now one character has been brainwashed by the bad aliens. Exactly. So there's a heel turn. There's exactly. a betrayal. And uh, and the movie sets you up to think, like, oh, the evil PMC is, like, going to use these automatically controlled robot things to kind of take control of the world. But it turns out it was this, again, guy who's been brainwashed. I won't spoil who it is. Uh, but, again, you can figure it out. <laughs> um, and he was working from the inside. The PMC really did not have this intention. They were actually just kind of, like, going along with it. So I thought that yeah. was, again, I, it, uh, narratively, is it the most complicated twist? No, but it's like the first one doesn't have anything like that. The first one's just straightforward. Punch the, ro- punch the monsters. 
Well, John, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I can, I can literally hear our audiences leaning in as we laboriously explain the plot of Pacific Rim Uprising. <laughs> yes, the giant because, robots punch I mean, the giant monsters. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is literally just an excuse to have giant robots fight giant monsters. And I, I will say, like, from that point of view, like, it's fine. It mm-hmm. feels a little more juvenile this time around. I think the first one, like, all those scenes took place in the dark, in the rain, or something like that, and trying to yeah. be more serious than it was. Mm-hmm. This this is more like a, this is more like the Nickelodeon version. This felt like the Saturday morning cartoon version of that. Yeah, and it feels much more uh, Power Rangers-esque. Now we have, like, a whole cavalcade yeah. of multicolored robots. And the, they feel a lot more weightless, which I know some people complained about. But, I'm, again, if it means, like, a lighter tone, then that works for me. Again, yeah, I, had I, mean, a lo- I, I have a lot. I had a lot more fun watching this one than the first one, mostly because I can at least remember it. So... <laughs> okay, this one, I, I, I don't know. I was rolling my eyes more at the at the at the college at the college admissions pamphlet cast. <laughs> <laughs> that is also fair. That's fair. Yeah. So yeah, John John Boyega is the the shining star. Like he's the sun in this movie compared to every other actor. <laughs> Literally, he's His, the son of Idris yeah. Elba's character. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. They, they should they should play father and son in a real movie. I think. I, I hope you agree. <laughs> it would be nice to actually see them on screen together at one point. That would be fun. Yeah, yeah. But the rest of the cast, um, his foil is a uh, Scott Eastwood, who's the no nonsense kind of uh, co pilot. Um, it's the worst performance from an Eastwood since Paint Your Wagon. He's he's awful. <laughs> he's terrible. <laughs> I I can't speak to it because I every time he was on screen it was just static. I was just like, is something happening? I can't quite <laughs> make out. Someone's saying lines, right? I mean, but again, it's the same problem with the first one, which is like every time they go back to the military base and it turns into Top Gun, I'm like, oh god, just get back to the robots. Yeah, but also there's there's another plot line involving a a, a group of cadets. Yeah, one of whom is a is an orphan. Who um, mm. I, I think I think their intention was to, was to cultivate Pacific Rim fanboys because she she starts rattling off the names of the robots and I'm like I have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> and all the robots have the stupidest names. <laughs> it's like Danger Bravo and Hungry Man Meals. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, the John. There's Gypsy Avenger. Okay, and then there's a there's a there's a big sword McGillicuddy. <laughs> one of the robots had a giant sword. I will say one of the robots has a giant sword, and I thought if I if it could take me back to like six year old me, I would want that toy. I would I would tug at my mom and say, "Go to Target and get that toy, please." <laughs> so mission accomplished there, guys. Yes. <laughs> so the other, but the other interesting theory I read about that character is again they're trying to kind of turn Pacific Rim into Star Wars. Again, not just with the presence of John Boyega, but then we also have mm. this orphan character who's really smart and good with scrap, just like Ray from The Force Awakens. And we even introduce a cute, uh, smaller Jaeger that turns into a ball, just like BB-8. And I can kind of see, like, they were like, oh, let's make this more like Star Wars instead of this lame, like... And, and they failed. And they oh. failed. <laughs> But hey, I'm I'm I like that better than the fucking military drama they try to sell us with with the stupid like these cadets, you know, you're out of the program. Like what? What? Who cares? Just have the robots fight. I don't care about the inner workings of your stupid army politics. You're you're right. There's not enough. Either make it like just thirty minutes of robot fights, <laughs> or try to make it like make it a little bit richer, like Star Wars is because. 
I don't know if they were they were um, if the director I think Stephen Denight or whatever his name is it doesn't matter <laughs> Does, <laughs> insert to, director here this is a Hollywood production yeah. so it's just director goes here <laughs> yeah but like it it doesn't even bother being a movie like there aren't even establishing shots <laughs> no we just go dead... straight in <laughs> yeah there's a dead um, kaiju or kaiju or dead robot at one point mm-hmm. and the cadets are like we should go in there and find out what's going on the next shot they're in there. <laughs> So you know, it's stuff like it's stuff like that. It, it, I had too many like I, my eyes were too spent too much time in the back of my head, so I didn't enjoy it as much as, as I think the first one. Even though yeah. I, uh, I bear, like a modicum of enjoyment out of the first one. So okay, see for me like yeah. the 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 fact that they cranked the stupid dial up a turn, I think made me enjoy it a little <laughs> bit more. Because <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll, I, I'll do respect to Geraldo del Tormo. I'm not a big fan of his, and. Like, because again, it's like, oh, I'm taking this. Uh, I don't know why I'm giving him that voice, because I can't do a Spanish <laughs> accent. <laughs> um, ooh, I'm taking this. B John, movie. he's Mexican forever. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, I'm taking this uh, B movie aesthetic and I'm elevating it. And I'm like, no, stop. Don't try. <laughs> I'm tired of this. No. <laughs> no, I mean, this is. This genre is is essentially a hamburger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can get it. You can get it anywhere. You know, it's very hard to screw up, but it can either. It's its ceiling is very low, mm-hmm. but its its floor is is also pretty high. So no, like you're just gonna wind up with something like average anyway. Exactly, and I think that's and why. And I know I know Guillermo del Toro wanted to bring the make the best hamburger he could, and this this Pacific Rim uprising just ends up being like McDonald's, just you know bland like you know a, a stomach filler. It, yeah, and all credit to Stephen McKnight or whatever his name is, because again he's mm-hmm. the director equivalent of a burger flipper, and he's perfect for the job. So <laughs> good work, Hollywood. <laughs> And they could wipe out all life. There's something you need to see. Yeah, I, I don't know if we swayed anybody. <laughs> I, we just took up 15 minutes of people's time. <laughs> Talking about giant robots fighting giant monsters. <laughs> yeah. And not it enough... was better than looking at a blank screen. I'll give it that. <laughs> I was never bored. Good job. <laughs> yeah. A plus cinema score. There was one scene I was bored. It's <laughs> Of course, it's when two characters are talking. <laughs> Get to the robots. <laughs> Make the monsters fight. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, not enough counter-programming in this episode. It's quite sad. We did two, well, John, two overly nerdy I'll, movies. Well, John, this is where we'll get to some counter-programming, huh? Oh, let's give something. Okay. Let's give something that people can can richly enjoy, huh? Oh, all right, all right. What 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 have you seen recently, Greg? That you want to maybe perchance spotlight? Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Uh, ah. Uh, oh. I was wondering how we'd work it in. Yeah, yes. we do work in Spotlight, even even in these recent release episodes. Um, this movie came out on Netflix in January, um, so but it's technically 2018, and I'll call it a recent release. Whatever. Sue me. <laughs> Who cares? I was actually really looking forward to this movie, because mm-hmm. it has a wonderful pedigree. It's directed by, I think, one of our favorite comedic actors, David Wayne. Mm-hmm. 
uh, part of Stella and the state and, you know, a, a comedy stalwart over the years. Um, had a hugely overqualified cast, telling a, an interesting little uh, pocket in comedy history. Mm-hmm. And the movie's called A Futile and Stupid Gesture. Yes, starring Will Forte. As a, as a maybe somebody you've never heard of, Doug Kenny. He was one of the founders of the uh, National Lampoon, mm-hmm. uh, a writer of Animal House and Caddyshack, and had the had a um, had a kind of rich, uh, but uh, spoiler alert, short life. <laughs> Wait, but doesn't uh, Jean Parmesan play his like older self or something like that? I can't remember the actor's John, name. The actor's I'll, I'll, name that he'll actor's always name. be he'll always be Jean Parmesan to me. <laughs> that actor's name is Martin Mull. <laughs> okay. And and yes, I think that's to to throw you off because um, again, if you if you got through that spoiler alert, um, Doug Kenny after like kind of a negative, he was already um, had some substance abuse problems, and after the initial negative reception, critical reception of Caddyshack, he uh, he went to Hawaii uh, to kind of detox and um, fell off a cliff. Some oh. people interpret it as an uh, I think they officially declared it as an accident, but some people interpret it as a suicide. Got it. Mm. Yeah. So you know, um, yeah, this is a fun anyway. way to talk about a comedy movie. <laughs> well, exactly. I think I think they try to um, Martin Mull, who plays a future version of Doug Kenny, is kind of our chaser. He's the one. He's he's doing uh, pieces to camera and kind of um, undercutting everything that's going on in this okay. biopic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Will Forte plays him throughout. We follow him from his his uh, his college days at the at the Harvard Lampoon. His uh, in in an effort not to get a real job, he starts the National Lampoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see other we see um, him come across all these comedy greats like John Belushi and Chevy Chase. How that leads to the Lemmings, how that leads to the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which leads into Saturday Night Live, which leads into Animal House, and and so we kind of see the progress from there. Okay. So John, now ask me what went wrong. <laughs> what went wrong, Greg? Was it the substance abuse thing? Because it sounds like you're telling me the <laughs> biography of John Belushi. So I'm a little confused. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't mean in the life of Doug Kenny. I meant in the movie. <laughs> oh, okay. What have what's what's wrong with the movie, Greg? Well, for well, for one thing, it's very cheap. Mm. You can kind of see that in, uh, like, a the makeup because again, Will Forte plays him from college student until his death at age thirty-four. So, and mm-hmm. and Will Forte is actually much older than that. So, well, I mean, you it can also you can also make the argument that that was intentional. Because again, David Wayne also made Wet Hot American Summer, and the whole joke of that movie is that, you know, you have Michael Ian Black and uh, Amy Poehler playing like high schoolers. <laughs> like it's it's yeah. meant to be intentionally dumb, <laughs> or intentionally yeah, but, artificial. Uh, yeah, and and same with the Martin Mull character, kind of like undercutting things, like uh, like mm-hmm. again being very self-referential. There's one point where we introduce all the all the comedy legends that come and start writing for the National Lampoon. And there's one scene where a bunch of there's like a bunch of other people and they and all their names are listed alongside their and they walk into frame and he says oh but we didn't have time to explore them and then they all walk out <laughs> <laughs> and then other another other characters ask uh, 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 the older Doug Kenny Martin Mull like wh- where are all the where are all the uh, brothers and sisters on this writing staff <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of like tugs at his collar and he says like uh, to be fair we didn't employ a lot of Jews either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's so that are, sounds very funny. I like that. <laughs> well, exactly. Like those that's the high point of it. The problem is it's very again, like with the cheapness thing, I'm always conscious that I'm watching a movie and it's also very staid. Uh, mm. when we're introduced to Doug Kenny and his uh partner, um I believe his name's Andrew Beard. He's played by Dom Hall Gleason. 
uh, they're they're just kind of throwing quips at each other that might have been hilarious in like 1963, but mm. it's kind of like it's kind of like erudite and it just dies on screen. <laughs> well, again, this and seems so, like. Uh, Again, like everything you're telling me just reminds me of Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> it just seems yeah. like they took the kind of Wet Hot American Summer and just applied it to Well, that's the problem. Like there's there's a spirit to Wet Hot American Summer. The problem is like everybody in this movie's old. <laughs> and it just and it just doesn't feel as alive and it, and it doesn't seem feel, feel like improvised. Yeah. Like I I thought like either you go like cuz again, this is a real per- unlike a Wet Hot American Summer, this is a real person. Mm-hmm. So you either go I felt like you either go like really earnest with it or like again, you do the completely like off the wall, completely self-referential. And it like it kind of like finds it halfway through. I will say again, like there's some good lines by Martin Mull in that situation in in those little pieces to camera, those fourth mm-hmm. wall breaking moments. Mm-hmm. But I'll say the the best stuff is when uh, Doug Kenny's uh, some depressive episode in Doug Kenny's life are played out as bits that he would do either on in the Lemming show or in the National Lampoon. There's one where he divorces his wife. Um, there's a famous um, kind of panel of a. A naked man and wife postcoital, and they do the like these speech bubbles, and that's actually how they interpret uh, the, the Doug Kenny's divorce from his first wife. Hmm. And I thought like, oh, that's that's effective the way in which they they're combining his work with his his real life circumstances. Um, there's another even better one at the, um, when there's sh- there's another even better one when they're shooting Caddyshack. Yeah. Uh, the guy playing Bill Murray um, is doing his like uh, nothing but Star Wars lounge singer bin. Yeah. <laughs> but he starts but he actually starts like narrating like Doug Kenny's lo- Doug Kenny's life like self-loathing cuz his first <laughs> marriage failed. <laughs> So those those moments worked. It's it's and I I'm extolling the 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 virtues of it, but it's 90 minutes of more kind of like just kind of just kind of fluff happening on. So I I think it's it's fine, but I I thought there was potential for greatness here, and it doesn't it doesn't quite reach that. So well, again, going back to just, the wet hot just, American summer uh, analogy is the problem. Yeah. I I really don't love that movie, and it's because it is a little too scattershot. Our favorite David Wayne directed film, they came together. I, I assume that's your favorite. <laughs> you know that movie yeah. is obviously. Well, I, I, I'm also a sucker for role models too. Oh, okay. I've never seen role models. Yeah. Um, that movie is obviously over the top, completely ridiculous, but everything comes in service of spoofing a romantic yeah. comedy. Like it has a thesis, and it's getting to that thesis. Whereas, like Wet Hot American Summer, again, like sometimes you you do get those funny quips, but then sometimes you know, like someone dies of heroin overdose, and it's meant to be absurd, and it's like 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 it's just too too much at once. Like a little yeah. bit of focus goes along. Well, no, John, I'll I'll push back on that because yeah, they came together as brilliant as an absurd spoof of a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with uh with a futile and stupid gesture is that it's it's kind of like halfway between like an earnest biopic and a kind of self-referential anarchic you know comedy movie mm-hmm. but if you look on netflix that movie already exists right next right next to it on netflix and it's called walk hard the dewey cox story <laughs> oh jeez <laughs> every chance he gets he starts extolling the virtues of dewey cox <laughs> exactly and they and they make the same joke like john c Riley is playing like i'm doing pretty good for a 17 year old with three kids <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> 
Yeah, and, yeah, and, but instead we're like supposed to believe that like Will Forte's in college. You know, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't. Like, can you go back to that sort of? And yeah, I, I felt like you couldn't. So it didn't. It didn't reach its its maximum potential in spite of like the the the, the comic geniuses that are that are portrayed in this movie and played by played by folks in this movie. Like, uh, okay, Natasha Leone, Tom Tom Lennon's in this movie. Uh, Matt Lucas of Little Britain fame. You know, mm-hmm. people like that, and they just they're just not given enough to do. Okay, yeah, pity, mm-hmm. pity. Yeah. So I, I mean, but it's fine. I mean, there's certainly worse distractions on the road to the grave. So <laughs> okay. I don't know if if you are interested, you know, check it out. <laughs> but John, en- enough about me. Again, this isn't about me. Am I? Am I hangups? Speaking of pity, it wasn't better and earnest adaptations. Uh, I saw a wrinkle in time. Ooh. Yeah. The 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 the, the, the latest Ava DuVernay masterpiece, as Disney would tell us. <laughs> Greg, you have to love it, okay? Because <laughs> it is directed by a black female, all right? And it's full of black girl magic, okay? It's got Oprah. You have to love it. <laughs> black girl magic sounds like it sounds like you're you're talking about uh, the racial spirituality or something like that, <laughs> and not treating them as real people. <laughs> now who's the real racist? <laughs> That's cultural appropriation. Yeah, um, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, the problem is the original source material is not a kind of straightforward YA adaptation with like great big epic set pieces, and they're trying to kind of squeeze it into that mold, and it really doesn't work. Like you can f- f- see them like straining to like, oh, is there a, is there an action set piece here? Is there like an action bit we can do right here? Like, what if we just had <laughs> Reese Witherspoon turn into a giant flying piece of lettuce, and then they they get attacked or something? How about that? Does that work? Does that work? And it doesn't, but. It's it's a very earnest movie, so it's kind of hard to hate. Like everyone, everyone's doing their best. <laughs> well, why did, why would you want to hate it in the first place, John? I mean... <laughs> um, it centers around a, a little girl, who's a, who's a newcomer. Her name is Storm Reed, and uh, her father, mm-hmm. played by Chris Pine, who's actually the best part of the movie. He's actually a really good uh, performance in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. He disappears. Uh, weird thing. It's called A Wrinkle in Time, and it's all about space travel. There's no time distortion <laughs> or anything going on. First well, major kind of, well, I saw I saw Interstellar, John. They're one of the same, <laughs> according to Kip Thorne or something like. That. I don't know. <laughs> this is basically the kids' version of Interstellar, where love yeah. is the most powerful force in the universe. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> That's scientific. That's just science. <laughs> yeah. That's just science. <laughs> um. So as a result, uh, Meg, who is the main character, kind of like acts out in school. She kind of like starts loathing and hating herself because again like even though the father's disappeared she felt she kind of blames herself and she's dealing with a lot of kind of like self-esteem issues um added to all that she has an adoptive brother named uh charles wallace who they always refer to as his full name charles wallace and that doesn't get annoying (laughs) after a while no sir (laughs) and he's just the most ages since i read the book so i don't know if that's a that's a direct carryover from the book but i don't know Again, again, John. They're two different things. Books and movies. It turns out are two different things. <laughs> it's almost like sometimes it malleable. just doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't do a one-to-one adaptation. It sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, but and like, there's this other blank slate who gets involved in this. He's basically just there to tell Meg that she's awesome. <laughs> he's just this dumb white guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's basically just there so that he's just this dumb character so that the other characters can explain things to him. You know, he's like an exposition person. Um, Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good story device. I, I love that. As a dumb person myself. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but then they get visited by three witches and they're sent off on a magical journey to save her father and prove her self-worth and mm-hmm. uh again it's meant to be like this exciting space opera but they only travel to two different planets so it's kind of like again the, the source material really doesn't work for like this kind of grand sweeping epic that they're trying to turn it into okay yeah and then the three witches they're played by uh, uh obviously oprah winfrey reese witherspoon and mindy kaling and mostly the costumes are doing 90 percent of the acting in that situation <laughs> so everyone's trying though it's like i don't know there's there's something about the movie that is kind of like earnest and heartfelt so it's kind of like you kind of want to give them credence for that but again it just doesn't work and like ava duvernay she's a very talented director but you can easily recreate your experience watching this movie which is take whatever camera you have stick it in someone's face so that the top of the frame is their forehead and the bottom half is their frame, which is awesome in letterbox. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> and just shove the camera in their face and then just do that like 9 million times for every character that's in the scene. She just, like, everyone is so tight in on their face. I don't know why. I, John, to get that intimacy so that you know what they're feeling. <laughs> I, I mean, I... I can't, I can't, uh, you know, criticize that. I think, I think movies are in the faces, are in the actors' faces. So, but they're so close, and it's I mean, all but reaction maybe, maybe shots. It was a, yeah, maybe it was an issue with the when you say letterbox. Did you see in an IMAX? Maybe it was like, maybe it wasn't her intended aspect ratio or something. I, I, I would hope so because again, like, yeah, okay. we're talking like, we're talking like close up. We're talking about you can see the pores on their faces close up. And we're like, it's for reaction shots. It's for like, it's not even for dramatic moments. It's just constantly like the camera is shoved right into their faces. Especially if you're on an alien planet, you want that widescreen to capture those scenic vistas. Why are we looking at their faces? (laughs) (laughs) To see the people in space. I don't know. Maybe it was a projection (laughs) issue too. Let's hope. This is the John. This is the pitfalls of actually going to the movies. <laughs> this is why movie theaters suck, and everything should just yeah. beam straight into our homes. <laughs> yeah, I implore exactly. the death of the theater. <laughs> Nuts to it, I say. Uh, Odds and Botkins. <laughs> okay, I I still love the theater going experience, assuming it's the right theater. If it's a if it's a uh, I don't want to throw out a brand name, but let's say ArcLight, and you know, they charge me an exorbitant amount. <laughs> Just to have an usher say, like, hey, everybody, welcome. <laughs> and, you know, b- blow out the speakers. Then, you know, no, I'm not I'm not feeling it. <laughs> but if we're talking about a small, nice, independent theater, you know, maybe showing revivals of classic films, you know, because we are, John, we're, we're, although we may be aspiring snobs, I feel like we're there already. I mean, yeah, did true. you hear us talk we about d- Ready Player One? <laughs> did we you hear do. us talk about Pacific Rim Uprising? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're looking at future classics here, people. Ready Player One, yep. it's going to go down to the annuls. <laughs> it's going to be like Schindler's List, Jaws, Ready Player One. Those are the, That's the definitive Steven Spielberg collection. <laughs> then The Adventures of Tintin. I was going to say... Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say we were snobs because we were able to go to the local theater and say like, eh, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> yeah. It was fine. <laughs> yep. They tried their best. Well, John, we've done our good deed for today. Mm-hmm. Our our podcast now, allotted community service is at an end, sadly, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so if we can implore you, the listener, to do a good deed for us, mm-hmm. that's to go to our Facebook page and click like, smash that like button, mm-hmm. and then you can go to uh, Twitter and follow us there for any news and updates. Because you're you're a savvy mm-hmm. internet goer, you need to know. Uh, again, how else are they going to learn about Sean Penn's book? <laughs> <laughs> 
But John, if they could do us just one one more favor, one more teeny tiny favor, go to your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, we Podbean, assume we're on all of them. We can safely assume that you're listening to this on some kind of service, and it would like uh, via the internet. <laughs> using that magical series of tubes so why don't you hit that subscribe button so you can hear listen you know listen to future episodes but then also Mm -hmm. leave us a review so that future people can read that and say hey this is a podcast worth listening to it'll help people become part of the aspiring snobs family and again future people again we're casting our minds to the future where kaijus are attacking are attacking us (laughs) and we take refuge in a virtual reality simulation (laughs) called the oasis (laughs) Oh my gosh, matchup. A brilliant idea for Ready Player Two. <laughs> Giant monsters attack the city. <laughs> and only the best Oasis players can actually combat can use the robots. Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what are they gonna do for a sequel? I'm assuming they are. I mean it was a best selling book. I mean the movie's doing well, so Jaybook, what are they gonna Uh well his follow up book, which was panned critically, was like uh, basically a rip off of the last Starfighter, so maybe they'll do something with that. Like the Oasis was really a testing ground to fight aliens. <laughs> Which again would match perfectly with Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim crossover. It's it's a cinematic universe now, guys. Alright, this is so easy. <laughs> Being a Hollywood exec is easy. Alright, John, let's re- let's return to our clubs. Mm-hmm. Get our get our blow. <laughs> <laughs> Mistreat some women. <laughs> Sexually harass some women. All in a day's yep. work. Yep. Done and done. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we should probably tell them what we're watching uh, next week. Oh, of course, of course. Yes, of course. Kirk's just so yeah. excited before, to get before out of here. We sh- before we shut her off to our, to our hookers and blow, let's find out <laughs> what we're watching next week. Next week, in celebration of our feline friends, we'll be watching Cat People. I yeah, just to let audiences know, um, John, this podcast is about you know looking, exploring old classics and um, finding some blind spots in our uh, in our in our uh, cinematic repertoire. And uh, you and I found that we don't have, watch a whole lot of horror movies, hmm. and so we thought, why don't we watch an old black and white movie where women turn into cats after they have sex? <laughs> this is a very complicated way of gray- saying this was Greg's idea to watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just preparing people for what's in store. <laughs> and we're watching the old 40s version. This movie was good enough to be remade, I'll, I'll let you know. All right? <laughs> it was either this or Razorhead, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, watch both, you know, with us next week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. What I want.